0: Our Father, we're thankful for our creation and we're thankful that you have left an infallible record and an inspiring Holy Spirit to interpret that record for us. that we are not cast adrift <clears throat> as so many uh, people are in our own generation, not knowing who they are, failing to see you, and with the result that they know not you in any saving way nor even in any preliminary way. We thank you that you have provided the light through the Lord Jesus Christ and have graciously reached into our lives and brought us to yourself. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight's handout duplicates page 36 on your, the handout from last week, we went from page 33 to 36. There's a new page 36 on tonight's handout, and uh, it's somewhat screwed up in the printer a little bit, but I reorganized that material, so you can throw out that page 36 from last week. Um, the new page 36 is just better organized. As I iterate through this stuff, I find that I need better organization. Let's review for a minute, and let's go through uh, where we've come so far and why, as we move now into a new chapter, we deal with the start to move now from the doctrine of God to the doctrine of man. We want to look at a few, remind uh, remind ourselves where, we, where we're going here. We're still on the creation event, and we're, we've looked at the doctrine of God, and now we're going to look at the doctrine of man tonight, and two weeks from tonight, and then after that we're going to deal with the doctrine of nature. So. We spent a long time going through the implications of the first two chapters of Genesis. Remember, that's all we're working with, just the first two chapters of Genesis. And what we've we've drawn out here is, is the implications. And this is why you can't study the Bible at high speed in this area. There's a lot of implications that carry over into every area of life. And it's back here in Genesis with the creation event that a lot of that material... is is put forward. We've looked at this diagram a number of times, but we're going to look at it again tonight because we want to review the two positions that are possible. There's not hundred and eight religions out there, folks. There's only basically two. There's the result of the fallen fleshly mind at work, and there's the result of God the Holy Spirit's intervention into history. And we showed from the very first night, very first couple of weeks, that if you look at the objective historical evidence of the Bible, you come up with the ex nihilo creator. If you look at the contemporary literature to the Bible, all through the ancient Near East, you have this doc- doctrine of the continuity of being. We're not making this up. This is just what is there. And when you look at the record, uh, you see that this same doctrine of the continuity of being occurs not only in ancient myths. uh, It was developed with great finesse in Eastern religions centuries and centuries before the West. You have Western philosophy tending now toward that direction as the West goes back to what the East uh, built up, and you have uh, modern theology largely going that way. So, a line here is the vast majority of people on the planet. The small minority believe this way, and we said that historically, you can go back to early primitive monotheism, Missionaries occasionally encounter this primitive monotheism in tribes where they, their mission boards send them in. And these tribes, we gave you some examples, how they have uh, a memory of a high God that disappeared, that something happened, they no longer have fellowship with this high God. Uh, many of them have a story of the fall. A man and a woman sometimes it's uh, drinking uh, grape juice or it's uh, eating rice or something, but a story of the fall. And they often remember the flood. And that is just memories of Genesis 1 to 10. Ancient Israel, of course, the Bible, and today the fundamentalists and those who are uh, basically still orthodox in theology. Well, we've looked now at these two positions. And we said that when the Bible presents God, the Bible always presents him as the creator. And we have to see there are a number of implications with that. So we've said, when we study God, we look at Him as He has revealed Himself, we always have to think about who He is and what He's like. And we say that He is omniscient, uh, omnipresent, omnipotent, that He never changes, He's immutable, He's eternal. We say that He is sovereign, that He's holy, that He is loved. And we said that he is all-knowing or omniscient. And there are many other ways of describing his character. These aren't the only ways. These are just a selected minimum list of attributes of God to think about. We said last time and the time before that the ones on the left side are so-called the incommunicable attributes. The ones on the right side are the communicable and Mike Watts raised a question last week, and it was a good question. Well, why do you call them? Why is there this difference? Why, why do you mean by the incommunicable attributes? It doesn't mean we can't communicate them. It just means that the ones on the left side here are attributes that are less like people, are less personal. And the attributes on the right side are more personal. That will come to the fore as we move now into man. So, we've looked at these attributes, and I deliberately drew the diagram tonight without the universe there. Just God. And the reason I did that is to remind us that all of these attributes are wholly independent of the universe. God is in no way dependent upon the universe. He does not develop. God does not change his character. He does not become more self-conscious of himself because he creates. There's not a cosmic improvement in God's person. God is self-contained, independent, and is not in any way, shape, or form dependent upon the universe. Fundamental lesson. And that's why we say God is ex nihilo. We don't just mean that He created out of nothing. We also mean that He is dependent upon nothing outside of Himself. So, having said that, now we introduce the creation. And we say, God, at a point, created the universe. Now we have an addition to the picture. But we still maintain the fact that what has now happened with the creation of the universe, that is fundamentally different from God. There's the creator-creature distinction. That creator-creature distinction is what separates biblical faith from paganism. It is that presence of the creator-creature distinction that snaps the continuity of being. It breaks it apart. It prevents it. It's an impediment. It's a wall. And you can't be crossed. There's no half God, half man. People try to do that. And in the history of the Bible, the the writers of the Bible try to, to protect us from that. The book of Colossians was written against the tendency in the early centuries to do that. So, there's always been these little creeping heresies, even in Christian circles, that want to make the crossover between the creator-creature distinction. Those of you who came Sunday heard the testimony of Scott McKinney about Mormonism. Mormonism does this. Their fundamental definition of God goes like, and the, the quote that I have in there is: As man is, God once was. And as God, uh, as, as, as God is, man one day shall be. And it's a complete progression. It's the continuity of being. It's the old reappearance once again of the centuries-old paganism. It just occurs and pops up in different forms, shapes and places. You just have to recognize it when it pops up. And they pop up over this continent, uh, with these people speaking that language, in this new thing. But it's the same old, same old. It's the same old story. And it has the same old weaknesses. So tonight, we are going to move to the next big distinction. This again is a distinction that flies in the face of the majority opinion. This is a distinction that cuts us apart as Bible-believing people from our culture. And that is the distinction between man and nature. That is a distinction that is denied, fundamentally denied by evolution. Man is a continuum with the primate. There's no difference. Let me illustrate what we're talking about here. Let's imagine the following scenario. You are on an expedition to a, a foreign land, and you've had, heard reports that there are these animals, two-legged animals out here that attack and kill people. You have your gun, you have set up your camp, and you erect some sort of perimeter defense. Because people have said, there are these animals out here that kill you. So it's at night you hear this noise um, and this shadow comes out of the darkness and begins to look what he, it looks like it's going to assault you. So you or your friend take your gun out and kill it. Then in the dawn's light you realize that this is a very human humanoid. This is a very human-like primate. Now the problem is, Did you kill or did you murder? Now, this is not just a fictional story. What I'm giving you is a fundamental riddle. And the riddle cannot be solved on an evolutionary basis. Because if the continuity of being holds true, then there's no place to draw the line between hunting and murdering. And this is exactly why in recent weeks we've seen this bizarre conference in, the, I think it was in California, it's got to be in California, that's where all the weird stuff happens, um, probably in San Francisco. But the point is that they have this conference where world-renowned biologists are coming at very seriously proposing to the United Nations that human rights be extended to certain high-level primates on the basis of the fact that their DNA is only 90—it's 97% like ours. You see, the logic flows. We're not talking about some bizarre religious doctrine here. We're not talking about some abstruse philosophy. We're talking about something that has very powerful, practical application. If you can't tell the difference between man and non-man, you've got a big problem when it comes to ethics and human rights. Where do you draw the line? The whole abortion controversy is basically over when does the person appear. That's why we have a big discussion. That's why the courts uh, have these fights. This is why there's bombings of abortion centers. This is why there's conflict. This is why there's this split in our culture. It's over a continuum here. When does a fetus become a person? Well, this is an even more dramatic illustration. If... Evolution is true. If the continuity of being doctrine holds, then there fundamentally is no difference between man and animal. No difference. What we observe as differences are no greater between man and a primate than between a dog and a cat. We're just different species, yeah, we interbreed, and our DNA is different and so forth. We are just another class, another set, another subset. We have a few more proteins. So... That's the conflict that we're dealing with. And this is where there's a cutting edge of Scripture. The Bible will not permit the doctrine of continuity of being. It denies it right here. And so now, tonight, we move out of the creator creature distinction onto the man-nature distinction. Once again, a highly controversial point we're making. It may not seem controversial to you because if you've been raised in Christian circles all your life, it's, you know, you take this as pretty obviously true. But I assure you, this is a bone of great contention today of what man is. So we want to look carefully at how the Bible presents this because we're going to run into this just as sure as we're sitting here tonight. This is going to go on and on and on in our generation. And as the the world around us becomes more consistently pagan, this is going to become a more encroaching assault on our position. So we want to look then at the man-nature distinction. So we want to turn to the Bible tonight and look at the narrative in Genesis 2. We want to look at the data. You may not think of this as data, but Genesis 2 is an eyewitness piece of data. And it always amuses me that people who are so quick in scientific circles to talk about, oh, we base our hypotheses on observations, don't recognize it. What do you think this is? Isn't this an observation? Well, not really. Well, why not really? Because that was written by a bunch of old Jews. Well, I don't care it was written by a bunch of old Jews. Uh, Pythagoras was an old Greek. But that doesn't disprove Pythagoras's theorem, does it? So, who cares whether they're old Jews? The point is... Is it or is it not acceptable data? Well, what they do is they exclude the data of Genesis 1 and 2 up front because of presuppositionals. There's a presuppositional agenda to exclude this data. So I object when this data is excluded. On what basis do you exclude this data? This is as much data as any piece of fossil they find in East Africa. This is a material witness to an act of creation, But what we want to look at tonight is evidences in this data for the miraculousness of man's creation. So we want to go to verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and then man became a living soul. Now let's look at the formula, because it, this formula... Explains a lot about the biblical nature of man. Just a simple observation. Nothing profound. Let's draw it as an equation. What came first, body or spirit? God made the body. So, we have body. Then, what did God do after he literally formed the body? He gave CPR. He breathed into the nostrils. So, we have breath or human spirit. And then what is it called after those two combined? A living soul. Now, just a few tips on these vocabulary terms. We are used to thinking in terms of S-O-U-L, this third term in the list. We're used to thinking of that in Greek terms. The Greeks use this word for the immaterial part of man. But the Jews didn't do it that way. The word soul is much looser in Hebrew and can include, it's just like we use the word person. So and so in the person. Uh, or The the, blood, the uh, soul is in the body or the blood is in the soul the, uh, so forth. Those expressions. It shows you that they had a physical idea in their head when they were using this word for soul. So be careful. Don't get too too... Uh, Greek, about how you define these words. So you have the body God's made, that simple observation, we're, we're looking at a picture of God, he's forming the man of the dust of the ground, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and now he becomes a living soul. But that, the, the text doesn't end there. There are more observations in this data. So let's go down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying of every tree, and so forth, and so forth, "Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and shall not eat thereof. He gives him the command. He gives him the test. He gives him the warning at the end of verse 17. "In the day that you eat, mark my words, you're going to die. Then in verse 18, the Lord says... It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help suited or needed suited for him. Now, if you look at this text and try to ram it, cram it, and jam it into the evolutionary mold, you've got a problem. Remember we said back a few weeks ago there are three approaches to Genesis? Remember what we said? There's the capitulation approach. The liberals say, oh, yeah, it, it, we believe it's all literal, we just don't believe it's true. At least they're honest to the text. Then there's the accommodationists. And the accommodationists are, and, and many of them godly people, that want to somehow get the Bible together with modern science. Problem is, modern science is a moving target. So you're going to get the Bible together with it, you're going to have to change it every decade. So, there's the accommodationist, and then there's the counterattack strategy that's largely cropped up in the 20th century as a result of failures in our apologetic tactics of the 19th century, saying, we can't really get these things together. The liberals really are right, in one sense, that the Bible is so far apart from cosmology that it's helpless to try to join them together. The liberals, on the one hand, say, well, then that's the Bible's wrong. Well, the counterattack people say, no, that's because cosmogony is wrong. But we both agree that we've got a big problem of trying to reconcile the two together. Now, the people that do try to reconcile together have fun here. Now, this is a real problem for the accommodationist strategy in Genesis, as you can well imagine. This whole picture and text of Genesis chapter 2 is so miraculous in its details that it defies any kind of a compromising, accommodating interpretation that this is somehow referring to the process of evolution. Now, what has been done has been seriously suggested that in verse 7, we have a sort of uh, metaphorical reference to evolution. In that, God is using the dust of the earth, and from this life began, and in a process of time, God made woman. Okay? Now, one of the principles of Bible study is context. said Sunday, you know, location is everything for business and advertising. In the Bible, context is everything. And if you want to know how to interpret verse 7, and you see the word D-U-S-T, dust, from dust man was made, or from the earth man was made, you better check in the context to see the proximity of the dust to the finished product. In Genesis chapter 3, the very next chapter, verse 19, describes the death of man. And if you're going to say that in Genesis chapters 2, verse 7, you have the evolutionary process up from dust to man, what do you do now in chapter 3 with verse 19, when it says, when we die, we return to dust. Do we devolve? See, whatever you do with verse 7 of chapter 2, you've got to do with chapter 3, verse 19. So, it pretty well narrows the field that we're dealing here with a miraculous observ- an observation of a miraculous fundamental event. God creating man. And if that weren't the case, and you were able to simply slide and grease your way through, you've got another barrier to that approach in chapter 2, because now what do you do with verse 21, verse 22? And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took out one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. A medical doctor once said that's the first anesthesia administered in history for surgery. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her to the man. Now, I challenge you to mix that one with an evolutionary process. You see, it's just foolish. The accommodationist strategy doesn't work. The liberals saw this a hundred years ago and they were telling us, you guys are wrong. Why don't you just throw out the Bible? Well, no you were right, the observation was right, it's just you're trying, to, you're trying to stretch something that won't stretch. Now, the fact is that when you interpret the Old Testament, another aid to Bible study is find out how the New Testament authors interpreted that passage. And uh, uh, here's how you can do that. In you, some of your study Bibles, you'll see references in the margin to New Testament. Sometimes it's just the subject. But look those references up if you don't have any other tool. Check those little marginal references because they will lead you to New Testament authors that are talking about that passage. So go to the New Testament authors and find out how they viewed the passage and learn from them how to interpret. So we'll do that tonight. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6, I won't get into what the covering of the woman is here, but the point is, what's so interesting in in 1 Corinthians 11 is that we're talking about a church problem. We're talking about a problem in a local church, and it's another one of these neat passages. I've often marveled at Paul. He's the sort of guy, and I've said this so many times, but it just keeps coming to my mind. He is the kind of guy that you couldn't talk about toothpaste without getting in some sort of a big theological issue. And he's talking about some social little thing going on in the congregation, and now he starts pulling up Genesis and creation. And look how he does it. He says in verse 7 Man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man, for the man is not out of the woman, but the woman out of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now, wouldn't you, if you just read verse 8 and 9 there, how do you think that Paul is interpreting Genesis 2? Not some long process. Some instantaneous process. Is Adam supposed to hang around for a million years until his wife shows up? doesn't work. So, and we, I also refer in the notes to 1 Timothy 2. That's another passage. Anyway, sufficient to the point that we have a miraculous piece of observation going on here. Now let's go back to Genesis 2. In Genesis 2... Just a few other things in the context. Notice in verses 15 and 17 what else this tells us about man. We'll say man was made the living soul, and then there's this bifurcation between man and woman. But before that, before the woman appears on the scene, Notice the sequence in the text. Verse 15, 16, and 17. God took the man and he gave him a calling. The man was given a calling. He was given labor to do. The Bible says the labor is a lot harder after the fall than before the fall, but it was labor. I have known a lot of people that think labor started with the fall. That's not true. God gave work and labor before the fall. There's honor and dignity to labor. And this is a, no, not a Labor Day message, but the point is that it's something that's really neglected in our culture of honoring work, of honoring the time it takes to get skills to do a job well, to complete a job, to take pleasure in the work that you've done on a job. I mean, basic stuff, and it's missing today. But It was given by God to man before the fall. Then a warning was given. A tension was set up. A moral choice was put in front of him in verses uh, 16 and 17. And the implication here is is powerful because notice in verse 16 and 17 that God has to give directions about certain trees. We'll come back to that after the New Year's. But I want to just put that little seed in your mind. Here's, Here's Adam. He's in the garden, and he has these trees. Okay? Now, if you do follow the thinking of some many theologians in the church, these guys will tell you that you can interpret nature without special revelation from God. That man, at least before the fall, did not really need special revelation to interpret nature around him, or general revelation. You don't need a key to interpret data. But you, you have been created by God with sufficient power here in order to interpret the data objectively, at least before the fall. After the fall, maybe we'll grant it gets screwed up. Excuse me, but what do you do with this passage? Was Adam, apart from God, able to interpret the trees correctly? Unless he was given special revelation about the trees. Now, this may seem like a small point, believe me, right now. When we get talking about science and interpretation of data later, this is going to come back to haunt us all, this little passage here. What this passage is teaching, that Adam's perception of general revelation could not have been correct even before the fall without the authority of special revelation. So that he had a control up here on his data interpretation system. And the data interpretation system is given here the trees of knowledge of good and evil. Verses 16 and 17 control Adam's interpretation of the trees. It is... Here, that the authority of special revelation, the Bible, is said to be higher than the authority of general revelation or just natural data. Okay, We're not falsifying the data. This is not saying the trees aren't there. The trees are there. It's just that there are things about the trees that Adam, well, it's better that he learned through special than, than general. And what was the fall all about? What did Eve try to do? In her interpretation of the tree, Eve tried to take over the interpretive process independently of the authority of the Word of God. That's where the fall took place. Man decides he, by his autonomous mind, apart from the Scriptures, can correctly interpret reality. And it's wrong. Here, before the fall, man could not interpret reality apart from the authority of the Word of God. This is an eloquent argument for the Word of God and its superior authority. That it is the only key and authority to interpretation of all reality. God created the universe and we can only reinterpret it according to His interpretation. He is the original interpreter because it's His original design. All we do is we discover what He already has done with it. And if He tells us, this is how I do it, we better listen and not spend a century or two going off on these tangential interpretations and saying, well, the data leads me to believe this. No, no. You are insufficient mentally as a human finite creature to correctly interpret data apart from an omniscience that created that data to start with. This is key. And we will get more into this, but I just want you to look at the observations of the text. Then notice something else in this day of, of, of gender conflict. Notice in verse 18, very important point here. It looks, when you first look at it, like sort of the woman is pictured as a tag-along. And a lot of women get bent out of shape by, by seeing this as a tag-along. It isn't. Do you know one of the interesting things about that word help or helper? I, I challenge you to do this when you get home. If you have a concordance at home, look that word up and find out where else it's used. You know the remarkable thing about that word is that it's used elsewhere for God himself. It's not a tag issue here. What is Adam's problem? It says his problem is, verse 18, that it's not good that he be alone. That has powerful implications, by the way. It shows you that there's no such thing as an island. No man is an island, you've heard. And that's true. None of us are islands. This this lone ranger hero that somehow is above relationships is a fake pagan idea. Sort of like Hercules. He goes around and he never, you know, he's sort of a semi god, he doesn't need anybody outside of himself. That's false, the scripture. And the scripture says it is wrong for a human to be alone. There's something wrong. That even before the fall see all this is before the fall. And God is saying it's not good that man be alone. So the woman is a helper fitted for him. Now, the interesting thing is, why did he need a helper? Because of verse 15. God, he was given labor. The woman is fitted and her role is defined in the narrative here by an assignment God had previously given to Adam. Now, isn't this an interesting thing? And we'll get into this more later on. But the point is that, that several observations to sum up here. In verse 15 and 16, we have a task or calling given to man. In verse 17, we have a choice given to man. And the choice means that the authority of the Word of God is superior to all forms of perception and reason. And then we are given that the woman is to help and her helping is defined in context to be helping in that calling. So, labor is involved. It's not just romance, it's labor. Then also notice something else in the context, just another observation about the high nature of man here. In verse 23 and 24, actually verse 23, in the original language, that's Poetry. And it's considered by most scholars to actually be sung poetry. That is a song. It's the first song ever recorded in history. Adam sings when his wife is brought to him. So, far from being some sort of a primitive, here is a man with a high calling, who supernaturally has been created, a woman created out from him, and in verses 19 and 20, he linguistically characterizes his environment. He studies it and is using language. And in verse 23, he's singing. Such a high view of man. Right from T sub zero. No evolutionary precursor in here. No development here. This is man as he was instantly created. Was already in, in charge of all these capacities. A marvelous high view of man. Okay. Uh, One other observation. Back in chapter 1, verse 27. When God made man, and he defined the imaging, notice how he defined it in terms of the sexual differentiation. Verse 27. In the image of God created he him, male and female he created them. In other words, the imaging, the imagehood of God is not masculine alone. It is both the male and the feminine side together that are called the image of God. So all these are observations in the narrative. Now we want to come in our notes to the design of man, and I've got four points under that design of man. We will get through only three of them tonight, but... um, Well, we might get into the fourth one a little bit. But the fourth one is very powerful, and I spent a lot of time in the handout for tonight developing that fourth one, because that's critical to a lot of what flows. Now, as we go into the design of man, what we're doing is we're drawing conclusions from the text, from this narrative, in the light of the following chapters of the Bible. Now, here's what I want you to see. As a Christian, here's one of the things that will rejoice your soul. It'll develop your faith and make you stronger spiritually. If you can see the ma- ma- majesty of our God and how He pulls this thing off that we call history. The majesty of God. Because... When God moves, and we've said this in the congregation, you know, we make the observation, we pray for somebody here in the chapel or something, and something happens, and, gee, you know, this person has this situation in his life, but they get ministered to by this person who has a need to do that, and you start looking at this, and I'm sure from the elder's point of view they see a lot of this going on, where God never moves doing one thing at a time. He sweeps through a whole group of people, so that people impact lives over here and something happens in this person's life it has ramifications here it has ramifications over here and you say, wow, how does he do this? I have often wondered how does he set up the situation? It's always been intriguing to me. I always think of like a chess game. And I went, like I'm a piece on it. and I, went, I never felt being moved and I know the other people didn't feel like being moved but it looks like he has a wonderful chess game going on. And the more you see of it the more you glorify God because you're seeing there's a pattern and a purpose to life. It is not chaos out there. Well, one of the things we want to look for is in the design of man. What we're doing, going back to the review here, we're saying that we're looking now at the man nature difference. And what we want to look at how that man nature difference impacts history. In other words, this little passage we just got through observing has profound implications about how God is going to work century after century after century, all the way up to our own time and on into eternity. Now, I will read that paragraph because I want to read a quote at this point. So, if you'll follow with me in your, in your uh, notes, and I'll, ch- I'll show you where to, to uh, emphasize things and where to um, maybe put some asterisks. Right. the first point on the unique design of man. This is the answer to the modern psychologist's problem of self-image. Now, if you want a self-image, here's where it is prior to the fall. This is the image of man. Here is what man is all about. Now, how anybody who perceives this in the, in the least way, in the fractional way, can think that he's just a little piece of debris. You can't. And that's why I want to encourage you, that we're not debris. No matter how much sin has wrecked our lives, we are not debris. God has built into our lives an indestructible imaging. And we want to look at that. First point. Of central importance is the truth that man is an image of God in both body and spirit. Remember we said, what does the narrative say about how God made man? It says that he combined body and spirit together. This is the foundation for all revelation. And it suffers from two opposite distortions. Now watch this. Okay? One distortion emphasizes this, that it's man's body that is made in God's image. And so emphasizes this, it gets off track. On the one hand, there is the distortion of Mormonism, which goes like this. As man is, God once was. As God is, man one day shall be. In other words, God the Father, according to Mormonism, is not only the archetype of our body, but he actually has a physical body himself, and indeed procreates children with his wives. Now, maybe some of you don't know that, but that's what Mormonism teaches. That's why they believe in polygamy. It goes back to the way God himself behaves. God had many wives, so hey, God has it, why not us? He's a glutton for punishment, we might as well follow. Okay, so the point is that we have a emphasis now on the body, an overemphasis, where now Mormonism says that gods, plural, have bodies. That Adam, in fact, was God the father. Brigham Young... Um, Not Brigham Young, but yes, Brigham Young said that at one point. On the other hand, to avoid idolatry, Christians usually restrict the image to the immaterial part of man, leaving it unrelated to the form of our body. So we have every reaction begats a counter-reaction. You see... When God created Adam in Genesis 2, what did he have in mind? He would one day become man. Isn't that powerful? Think of that. This isn't a primate who lost his banana. This is a creature fashioned in a special way because God would have to become that creature in the incarnation of Christ. This is a high and lofty view of man, and this is why the Genesis narrative is not some accommodating little process of taking millions of years. It's a miraculous process, just like the Incarnation was a miraculous process. How many million years did it take Mary to get pregnant? When God moves, He moves omnipotently and sovereignly. He doesn't need means. His Word is the means. If he speaks, it is so. Okay, now let's turn to the New Testament just briefly to see this connection. Turn just to that simple the thing. I uh, think we covered it in church service not too long ago. John fourteen nine. Now think about this body business. That the body was created so that the incarnation could occur. Now if you turn to John fourteen nine. It's that passage between Jesus talking to Philip. And Philip's got this little epistemological problem. He says, well, in verse 8, Lord, uh, show us the Father. Just give us a vision. What would you suppose is on Philip's mind? A big theophany is what's on his mind. Man, if you could just show up in all your glory. you know, Let's have a super Sinai experience here. And then Jesus comes back with this strange remark in verse 9. Have I been with you so long, and yet you still don't know me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Now, did Philip? Philip saw Jesus' spiritual character, but he also saw Jesus walking around in his body. And what Jesus is saying is that I am the Word become flesh. The Word has become flesh. And it's flesh, Philip, so you can see me. I've come down to be a creature. So you can look at me. This is your God. So the body is related to God himself through the incarnation. Adam was designed for Jesus. Whatever happens in Genesis 2 is what happens in the Gospel narratives. Okay, let's go on page 35 to point 2. And let's turn while we're doing that um, over to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians 15. Because uh, uh, we won't get to 1 Corinthians 15 just for a minute here. But just turn, so we'll be there when we have to get there. The second thing that we want to say, besides the fact we've already said in the design of the man... Here's man's design. We said that the image of God, the image of God, is related to body and spirit together. Now we're saying something else. Point number two, coming out of those narratives. What did God tell Adam to do? He gave Adam and Eve a commission that they should dominate the earth, have dominion over the earth, subdue it, rule it. That's the mandate given to man and woman. Now, what part of the earth is closest to us? In fact, what's Adam's name? Adam means red. It's the same Hebrew word from Edom, red. And it's red because it was red of the earth. Adam was presumably what we would call, say, a, a brownish type person because he's, he's brown and brown and reddish color. And that's what his name was. That's why he's called Adam. And this is, of course, the the Caucasian authors and painters down through history has always presented Adam and Eve as white. And that really is not true, because his name betrays that. He's not white. He's dark-skinned. All right, so Adam then is created. And he is told to subdue the earth. But his body is the earth nearest. What was Adam made out of? Dust, his body. So what part of the earth does he first rule? Think of a little baby now. You see these little babies. You know, I was there when I remember one day I was watching my first son, and I just happened to be at that brilliant moment when he discovered that his fingers were his. And you know, b- babies every while kind of flop around, and then if you everyone, you'll get a point. And I forgot how many months old he was, but all of a sudden they'll start saying, "Huh, look at that. That moves when I want it to move," and it's a big discovery. Because they suddenly have discovered something tremendous. They're they're developing their identity. They're beginning to rule. They're beginning to conceive. They've become self-conscious now. So, we rule out from our own body into the world around us. Angels don't have this. Angels don't have bodies. They can incorporate themselves temporarily. But only we, are these strange things that God has made that are both material and immaterial. And he has told us that we, not the angels, we, are to rule the earth. And we begin by ruling our own flesh. And see, sin causes the flesh to rebel. That's why the thorns and the thistles. And in a deeper sense, that's why Romans 7 we talk about the flesh rebels. Sure it does. Because we rebel against God. Well, On page 35, one of the medieval theologians put it this way, and I think this is so neat that I just had to give you this quote. The spirit was created for God's sake. The body for the spirit's sake, and the world for the body's sake. So that the spirit might be subject to God, the body to the spirit, and the world to the body. That last clause, the world to the body, is the rule of man. That is the dominion of man. Don't ever let an unbeliever tell you that because you are a Christian that you hold to some little uh, mimicky, sad sack, passive view of man. Oh no. Man is the Lord of the earth. Literally. Man is Lord as long as you keep the L small. That is the foundation of man. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, to show you how powerful that is, once again, all of these designs back in the garden have eternal repercussions. And so the second one, just like the first one, has eternal, salvific repercussions. Notice in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the mission of Jesus Christ. Then comes the end when He, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Now look at, this, look at the way it's put. When he shall have put down all rule, all authority, all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy shall be destroyed as death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says that he puts all things under him, and so forth, and goes on. But in verse 28, when all things shall be subdued unto Him, where do you suppose that language comes from? If some of you have Bibles. You'll notice, uh, with the study markers, you'll notice that verse 28 is probably keyed back to Genesis 1:26 to 28, because it's the language of Genesis. Verse 28 of Corinthians is the language of Genesis. Now, do any of you see? Uh, um, do you sense what's going on here in this passage? Do you see what's happening? that this is the final domination, the completion of the plan of salvation by Jesus Christ, and he is doing what was assigned to Adam in a vaster way here in this text. It is so similar to Adam's mandate that it uses the very language from Genesis 1 to describe that ultimate dominion of Jesus. Now why then... You, well, let me let me go back. This is why Jesus, all, another name that is given to him in the Bible, we don't normally think too much of, is the Son of Man. Literally, what it means is Jesus is the Son of Adam. What does that mean? He does and lives out and is successful at pulling off what Adam was assigned to do. Adam before the fall, the fall messed everything up. The earth rebels. The whole thing goes to pot. But, but, just as as death entered through man, by one man came death, by one man death will be suppressed and destroyed and erased forever. Man is the central actor so that Jesus, the Word becomes incarnate and this lordship of man, under God's lordship, extends out to conquer. It's a wonderful, almost imperial view of man. A very lofty and high view, and of course we, we can. Uh, in pay, bottom of page 35, I give you some more references. 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, those of you who are not familiar with that passage, that's a passage which shows that men shall judge angels. Not only are men, uh, are we to judge the earth now, but our dominion is extended in eternity to include angels. And and Romans 8. Of course, you know that passage where nature is just waiting, waiting for what to be redeemed waiting for man to assume his rightful place again. And the man that will lead the conquest is the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. Jesus' mission is but a fulfillment of this Adamic dominion. So again, the Genesis text is so important because it goes all the way to Revelation and its implications. Everything is set here. The mold is fashioned. And everything is put together so that it all flows. Now, on page 36, which we had, we are running out of time tonight, so I'll be only very brief. Um, on point number three, and I'm doing point number three because next time I will do point number four, and point number four is a real ripper. This one involves a lot of material, a lot of very important material. We're not going to touch it tonight, but I do want to get point three down on page 36. I spent a lot of time at the beginning of this hour going through the narrative and showing you how Eve was created out of Adam. And I said that that's one of the features of this narrative data that refutes any accommodationist strategy. There's something supernatural going on here. You know, the Bible says God made animals male and female. But why didn't He make man that way? He didn't. Right, he made him ultimately that way. But the Bible tells us that when He made that first body it encapsulated the male and the female. They were together. They were in one flesh, in that one body. Now, why do you suppose there's that difference between them and, and uh, Cocker Spaniels? I mean, why is man different like that? There's a reason for that, too. In, in, uh, on, on page 36, the paragraph where I say, Why the special treatment for man? Because man is central to God's plan of showing forth His glory, God will one day need to save men from their sins. The entire race must be designed to be redeemable so that one Savior can die for the many. See, in angels, they were all individual. Theoretically, I guess if you had substitutionary death for angels, you'd have to have a million saviors. But by keeping the whole human race together, this is mysterious. We don't know why, you know, all the ramifications. But when you get into passages like Romans 5, when you're in Adam or you're in Christ, it's not you're in Adam and Eve and in Christ. It's only in Adam. In Romans 5, it says, by one man sin came into the world. It doesn't say by two people. So there's this this solidarity to the race. Now, that solidarity apparently has something to do with making the human race savable so that the entire plan of salvation can occur. And Jesus can die and somehow render salvation corporately to humanity. Because Adam is the representative. And he can be the representative because literally from him all else came. Looked at maybe in scientific language today, the DNA of everyone comes out of that one body, not two. There were not two genes two sets of genes that combined. It was only one set of genes that were split. And that was the beginning. And so from that, every human being, all of our t- tissue here tonight, sitting, if we could get a little microscopes and look at it, we are looking at, the, at what was there in that one body. Every race, every sex, every different person, was all wrapped up in that body that God made in Genesis 2. Racial solidarity. And it's a peculiar thing in scripture and you can kiss it off as a fairy story as people do and say a tut-tut-tut a condescending little attitude or you can accept it for what it is an observation of the way it was created that when God did this amazing thing in Genesis 2 he had a lot of things in mind. He wasn't randomly doing this well I'm Bored today, so let's play. That's not the way God started the creation. He said, I will glorify Myself on through the ages into eternity. And I begin chapter 1 here. Very efficient. God doesn't do one thing. He does many things when He does one thing. Well, next time after the New Year's, we're going to deal with the fourth one where we get into the lively side of man The spiritual side. So if you think that the first part was rather amazing, wait till we get to the spiritual side of man. Father, we thank you for who you are. That when we worship you, we worship one who is incomprehensible, who is wonderful. And we thank you, Father, for these great truths that assure our hearts of our Father's nature. His care for us, that He had us in mind, and the salvation for us, when He made, when You made the original creation. We thank You for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sins and leading us back to You. In His name, Amen. Let's everybody turn to Genesis 2:19. Merv brought up a good point, and I omitted that, and I should have uh, pointed that out. Uh, Genesis 2.19 is, is a revelation of something else that's going on. Now, I made the point in verse uh, 16 and 17 that the trees were obviously having to be interpreted by God. Uh, for example, the poisonous effect. Just think about verse 17 for a minute. If it's true... On this tree, let's go back to my trees. If it's true that, say, this is the tree, that Adam eats it at time t0, that he's going to die, or surely die. That is a cause effect that he could not have observed or known himself unless he did it. Adam and Eve, uh, Eve followed her high school science class very well. She It was a hands-on experiment. And she discovered that, indeed, she does die when she eats of it. So that's data. That is a structure of the tree that Adam could not have known unless God himself authoritatively interpreted that tree for Adam. Okay? Now, having said that, that does not mean that Adam couldn't interpret things about the universe around him. He had that capability. It's just that it's a relative capability subject at all times to the authority of God and his override his overriding interpretation. And what Merv has pointed out in verse 19, which is uh, a mission, I'm glad you mentioned that, Merv, because I'm going to add that to my notes and that's something I meant to. <laughs> and I will put, put a little note in here when I do the next version. Uh... That is a very fundamental verse, verse 19. Because what that tells you is that man is given the freedom to create. You'll notice in verse 19, notice the little phrase, he brought the the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called them, that was the name thereof. God allows this area of where men can be creative. Now, let's diagram this as a circle. As a series of concentric circles. God has certain requirements for our lives. That would be Genesis 2. um, What's it? Verse uh, 16. And that would illustrate the do's and the don'ts of Scripture. Where God says... You do this, I expect you to do that, I don't expect you to do this, blah, 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 it's black and white, you know exactly what's going on, there's directions. But now, we also have areas that he wants us to do things, and he is not going to tell us how to do it. Every once in a while you get some people that get so hyper-spiritual, they're going to talk to God about what kind of color tie they're going to put on in the morning. And what this is basically saying is, I'm not going to tell you what kind of colored tie to put on in the morning. You do it. See, there's room for this choice and creativity. And God doesn't interfere with that. Verse 19 is an authorization to be creative. But in the context, who is it that's bringing the animals to him? And why are the animals being brought to him? Because God has something that he wants Adam to discover for himself. And verse 19 shows us something about our our Christian life, too. That he brings circumstances that in one sense he could have told us about. But he brings them into our lives that we learn on our own, as it were. Now, why do you suppose he does that? It's very interesting. He, He has a high view of us in that he expects us to learn from things. And he is not going to tell us everything. In fact, there's a passage in Proverbs that says um, it is is up to the king or it's up to God to hide things. It's up to the king to find them out. And and it's the idea that there's hiddenness in the creation and in life. That he brings these things to test our powers as dominion people. Whether or not we're going to perceive what he is really doing with us. That's why there's a whole core of literature in the Bible that's called wisdom literature. The, wisdom, the, the Hebrew canon is divided into Torah, Prophets, and Nava'im. The, prophet, the, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And the Writings are the wisdom part of Scripture. And the Hebrew canon, is split in three parts. And all those wisdom parts are like Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And if you look at that, it's, it's almost teaching by riddles as though God wants to stretch our minds and make us think and come to our conclusions. So, the answer is that there are these areas of the will of God and there are, there's, a, there's what we call I, I say this with quotes there's a free zone where we're free to do our thing. But it's freedom in the sense that ultimately it's under Him. He's setting up the situations and we should submissive in our spirits be when we're looking uh, for this. Adam wasn't rebelling and and calling the animals stupid names. At this point, his his mind was not marred by the sin. And so he was very perceptive. I mean, as these creatures would come by, and the, the text is quite clear, when the creatures come by, he is able to look at them and size them up. So he had a brilliant mind at that point yeah good that's right Murph yeah so uh, that's another passage and I, I will add that to my notes I, I just sometimes I'm tired when I'm typing this stuff and I don't put it in but I had that on my mind that that is a central passage in Scripture right from creation of creativity by man. Okay? Anything else on the body side? We're going to get into the spirit side of man a little bit, but the body side of man. Body, uh, I mentioned to Bill just before he left, one of the things that's interesting is, do you realize this is why salvation is not considered to be complete until we attain our resurrection bodies? Because a soul that is saved outside of its resurrection body is not a complete product. God made us to have bodies. We're not like angels that kind of float around. I don't know what they do, but they seem to be able to change form. We have angels showing up as fire. Then we have an angel showing up as a person. Now, how they can mutate and transform themselves from natural phenomena into people and back to natural phenomena and beyond, beyond our scope. But they have this capability. Angels can show up as animals. And uh, they, they, we'll go into that in the next chapter, how animals, what we call animals, the zoomorphic forms in creation, actually are angel parts. Because when you look at the throne of God, you see these angels that are part bird, part lion, and so forth. So it's, uh, again, it, it flies in the face of Darwinian evolution. Darwin always wants to ascribe biological form to evolutionary adaptation. That's not true. I mean, the sheep, for an example is a defenseless creature. Now you tell me how the sheep is the survival of the fittest. A sheep always needs people. That's why in the Bible the sheep was there right from the start, right from creation. The sheep would never have made it over millions of years. It's so dumb, stupid, and so incompetent to take care of itself. So it's an illustration. But the sheep, the form and structure of the lamb is made to depict something of God's character such that when He wants to depict His saving, gracious nature and His giving to the point where He sacrificed and dies, God always speaks of Himself as the, the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Why that form? And not say a goat or a bear or a cow. Ever think about that? Why the Lamb? Because the Lamb's Function and form are allied to God's mind and his plans. So the angels have wings and the angels have forms and functions and it looks like what we call animals just really uh, are made from prior corporeal designs of the angels. I was like I have a veterinarian son and he he loves to help animals out and operate on them and save them and fix their broken legs and do all kinds of neat things. And I, I sometimes kid him about the fact that he's dealing with a bunch of angel parts. And he always looks at me with this funny look on his face. But, yes, Glenn. Oh, that's a good question. question was, do you suppose that Adam's body was like ours? Um, I mean, anything, you know, it's, it's speculation. But here's some, here's some thoughts about what Adam. I mean, if you ever get some time to make a video, you know, and you're going to become a Hollywood producer and you want to put on a film. Um, one of my suggestions would be that, first of all, Adam would be medium color skin, color of the earth. Second of all, remember that the antediluvian people, after the fall, were dying. But how long did they live? 900 some odd years. So I would take it from that that our bodies are pretty picayune. We are probably, if you lined us up in a museum and had, oh, these are the people from the, you know, these are the 20th century people and these are the uh, days of Abraham and here's the people before Noah and there's Adam. Uh, you know the evolutionary pictures yours, you always know, see the monkeys going better and better and they get to be men? I think what you'd see in this museum is here you have this tremendously powerful person and the human race looks pretty sick until we get to us. The greatest athlete among our time is probably half-coordinated, I would imagine, because there must have been a deterioration. I've often thought about this. How, can you th- how do you think this body that it ages. I mean, you know, I look in the mirror 56 and everything, I see a new wrinkle every day. I see hair turning gray. And, and you, you begin to think, gee, I am mortal. <laughs> and when you're young, you never think you're immortal, you know. Young people, you don't have to worry about it. But when you get, as you get older, you become more and more aware of the deteriorating body. And it's automatic. You're not doing anything to it. You try to take care of it and it just falls apart. That's because we are under capital punishment, but we're under an accelerated sentence of capital punishment. Think of what it would be like to live 850 years. I mean, just, just let's, you know, take the Bible seriously and think about this for a minute. Let's say this was your 850th birthday. So now we're in 1996 almost, and we go back 850 years. That means... You were born in 1146. Now, if you had lived since the year 1146, how much history would you have personally observed? You would have seen Luther. You would have watched the Reformation. You would have seen the end of the Middle Ages. You would have seen the discovery of the Western Hemisphere. You would have have talked with Christopher Columbus. You would remember Galileo. You would have a very potent view of history. Is this one reason perhaps why there's not many written histories until later in civilization? Because men didn't have to write histories. If you wanted a history, just go ask Dad. I mean, what, what you couldn't remember, he could. So... The point is that we are pretty diminutive versions of that one great, awesome person called Adam. Now, whether he was physically bigger, I don't know. The only hint you get is that people who are bigger than us are called giants in the Bible, which means that they must have been bigger. So we probably are normal in size, but we certainly are not physiologically normal people. Okay, Okay, let, let me be careful here, too, to, to go back to that. The body is the image of God because we don't want to get too into, into worshiping the body. Uh, yes, go ahead. Debbie. There seems to be some out in Ephesians, and I'm sorry, I don't know exactly where it is. But some sort of the kind of mutation that God is in the glory Mm-hmm. Okay, I think the way you have to approach the body is look how God handles it in salvation. God resurrects the body. Jesus rules with a body. In the book of Revelation, there He is, the Lamb as it had been slain, sits on the foundation. Jesus goes to Thomas. He says, my scars. Interesting that His resurrection body bears images of history. So our resurrection bodies are almost like they, are, they become kind of like incarnate records of our lives. doesn't mean we have scars like Jesus, necessarily. But nevertheless, the, bo- the, the, the body exists, and it's not just a corporeal spirit. It's not just a corporeal spirit. The problem with us when we talk about the flesh is we're always talking about the fallen flesh. The flesh as it now exists after the fall. Mortal flesh. But let's be careful... Jesus had flesh too, and yet he is said to be sinless. And it was his body that was sacrificed on the cross. He, as God, was also sacrificed, but his body was sacrificed. So the body is worth something. And Jesus, we'll get into this when we get into chapter 4 on on evil and death, but one of the things that we want to be careful of, and I'll give you kind of a foreview of, of the dying of the body, and now we'll get back to the body itself. If Adam would have died apart from the fall, if death were a natural process for man, then the death sentence in Genesis 2 would be wholly spiritual and not physical too. Okay? Also, if death is a mere natural process biologically then Jesus' death on the cross was not a substitutionary death. It was merely a premature death. Jesus prematurely died, say, at age 35 instead of dying what he would have died at 75 or 80. That's not true. Jesus said, I give my life. So apparently Jesus in his body was could have been immortal had he not given his body to the cross. Jesus had no sin in his flesh. So flesh is not necessarily evil. Paul says, I mean, Jesus says when he's trying to teach Thomas about the difference between your bodies, these mortal things we walk around in, and the resurrection body, remember he says, uh, flesh and blood, but then he talks about his resurrection body and he says, flesh and bones, I have. So there's some sort of resurrection flesh that takes up space, is able to go through walls, is able to appear and disappear, but nevertheless is flesh that eats. Jesus was eating in his resurrection body. And you know in communion service, one of the passages that pastors will often see, what does Jesus say? I will not drink of this until I come again. What is he talking about? Drinking. So he's saying when I come again, I will drink. I will celebrate communion forever and ever. Well, he has a body. It's consuming something. So, so, to come back, bottom line, is the doctrine of the resurrection of the body sanctifies the value of the body. The body is not simply discarded. Salvation is not complete until resurrection occurs and both the spirit and the body are saved together. Now, the body and the image of God, all we have to go on is that God says, I've made that living person in my image. And whenever God shows up in the Bible, it's never as an animal. And you may say, well, I'm being facetious. No, I'm not. Because throughout the world, gods appear in animal forms. God, uh, the gods appeared in the ancient East in animal forms. You you all have seen pictures of it. You've seen pictures of these uh, Assyrian sphinx. You know, that sits there and he's got wings. The sphinx of Egypt. a head of a man on a body of a lion. I mean, their gods are always doing these kinds of things. But when God of the Bible shows up, he never shows up as an animal. He shows up always as a man. So what we have to say about the body as an image is that the body is shaped so that somehow the way we are shaped express God's character. So when he makes a metaphor about my arms shall save you, it's not just a random metaphor. That somehow the way our muscular structures are, what our arms do, corresponds to his omnipotence. Now only one of the three persons of the Trinity have a body. We're not like Mormons. Mormons believe that everybody has a body. Father and everyone else. No. Only the Word of God has, is incarnate. The Word became flesh. Same word, by the way, flesh. Didn't demean itself. And why this is so important is because there's always been a tendency because the flesh in fallen form gives us so much problem that we want to get rid of the flesh. And a lot of religions do this. They want to get rid of the flesh. They want to put down the flesh. Flesh is an impediment. Gnosticism did that, and they denied ultimately that Jesus had a body. I mean, there were people in the early church that were offended, profoundly offended, by the claim that the Word of God became flesh. Remember, John says, what does he say even with the Antichrist? The Antichrist denies what? That Christ has come in the flesh. Now, why is there such a harsh judgment against the denial of the flesh? It's because in the, the, it's a heresy that says that the physical body as such is something wrong about it. There's something sinful about the human body. There is nothing sinful about the human body as such. God didn't make a sinful thing in the Garden of Eden. He made it with his own hands. He shaped it. Our shape as people, as the human being, was made by the craftsman not by evolution, by a craftsman who deliberately shaped it with his very hands. See, now I'm using hands. Um, Tertullian uses the word hands. So it's a mystery, uh, Bob. I, I don't know how to express it other than to balance the scriptures, we have to honor the shape of the body. But we don't worship the body. We don't uh, exalt it like that. But we certainly do come hard against the idea that the body is a useless appendage. It's incidental to life. No, it isn't. Anything else? We're kind of running a little late. Okay, let's cut it off tonight, and we'll see you in two weeks after New Year's. Okay?